0: Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, The Evolution of the Irish from Biblical Times. This is episode number 37, entitled, Michael Collins, 1890 to 1922, Maya Llewellyn Davies, and the Irish Civil War. I hope you like this, and that you will share with others on social media. setting up of the Free State. Opposition to the treaty intensified and armed groups took over buildings in Dublin as the country drifted into a full civil war. Free State ministers went back and forth to London, often meeting their opposite member in the Lavery household. In June 1922, the attack on the Four Courts began the civil war. The Laveries arrived in August 1922, the day after Arthur Griffith died suddenly. They spent a lot of time with Michael Collins, now Commander-in-Chief of the Free State Army. They were with him when two attempts were made on his life. Once when his car was riddled with bullets, and another when a sniper was apprehended in the grounds of the Royal Marine Hotel in Dunleary. Within a week, Collins was dead shot at Bailneblaw near his home in County Cork. On his body was a book of Rossetti poems with a letter from Hazel Lavery in it. Hazel was distraught. John painted two great paintings, Love of Ireland and Pro Cathedral Dublin, 1922. He continued to paint portraits of all the main figures on both sides, including Lloyd George. Back in 5 Cromwell Place, London, was still the official headquarters for Irish political and artistic personalities. George Bernard Shaw, Oliver St. John Gogarty, Shane Leslie, and many others. Interesting, the MP and Fenian, Stephen Gwynne, and his son Dennis were there also. Dennis, a pupil of Patrick Pearce, was to become a professor of history in UCC. He later became Alice's second husband in 1963, after the death of Jack McEnery in Rossonara, Kilmagani, in 1957. Alice was, of course, the daughter of Hazel from her first marriage to Dr. Ned Trudeau, a surgeon in Bellevue Hospital, New York, who died tragically from pulmonary embolism four months after their wedding. Whatever you believe about Michael Collins, The facts are that he was surrounded by Irish men and women, English men and women, English men with Irish accents, Irish men with English accents, an American with a Spanish father, ladies with amorous intent. And at the moment of his death, he was president of the provisional government, minister for finance, holding the purse strings, chief of staff of the Free State Army, financed and equipped by Britain and head of intelligence. One of his closest colleagues was On O'Duffy, the well-known fascist, who was Chief Superintendent of the Garda-Shircona from the 30th of September 1922. Having been appointed by Kevin O'Higgins 1892 to 1927, who served as Vice President of the Executive Council and Minister for Justice from 1922 to 1927 minister for external affairs from june 1927 to july 1927 and minister for economic affairs from january 1922 to september 1922 he served as a td or Chopta dollar from 1918 to 1927. along with michael collins and donald duffy kevin o'higgins is another important figure and part of the quartet who after having a role in the Irish War of Independence went on to defend the Irish Free State as part of the pro-treaty side in the Irish Civil War. During this time, Kevin O'Higgins signed the execution orders of 77 Irish anti-treaty political prisoners. He was later assassinated in retaliation by the IRA unit in Booterstown, County Dublin. It is now accepted by all that O'Higgins definitely had an affair with Hazel Lavery. Sinead McCool, who wrote Hazel, A Life of Lady Lavery, in the book said, Hazel Lavery's reaction was similar to her reaction following the death of Collins, and after his death in 1922, she was said to have transferred her affections to O'Higgins. Letters found in a house in County Wexford, among some Christmas decorations, by a woman clearing out her deceased father's possessions. They were part of papers gathered by Owen O'Duffy's private secretary, Captain Lee Walsh, for an unpublished biography of the Garda commissioner, and certainly proved the relationship between Hazel Lavery and Kevin O'Higgins. Another important series of 14 original letters, from Maya Llewellyn Davies to the historian P.S. O'Hegarty, Written in the period 1941-43, to with personal recollections of Michael Collins and others, including disparaging comments on Lady Lavery and Kitty Kiernan, and with notes on the English Treaty negotiators, prepared for Collins by her husband, Crompton Llewellyn Davies, were auctioned in 2007 by Adams. Crompton Llewellyn Davies, a Welsh civil servant, had been a friend of Lloyd George, His wife, Maya, was a daughter of James O'Connor, a former Fenian prisoner and MP for West Wicklow. She was intelligent and attractive, described as tall, thin, agile, extremely elegant. The couple met Collins in late 1918 when he came to London with a Sinn Féin delegation, hoping to lobby the American president, Woodrow Wilson, on his way to the Paris Peace Conference. A friendship developed and Crompton Llewellyn Davies advised Michael Collins during the Treaty Talks in 1921. There have been reports of a personal relationship between Moya and Michael Collins, and she undoubtedly knew him very well. She may have known P.S. O'Hegarty from the early 1920s, when he was active in the IRB and Sinn Féin. In 1941, he was Secretary of the Department of Post and Telegraphs and working on his book, A History of Ireland, under the Union, 1801 to 1922. She wrote to him seeking a telephone at her new home in Wicklow, and a correspondence began in which she gave much first-hand information about Michael Collins and others. Her letters are sharply written, full of frank and perceptive comments. A long letter dated the 25th of May, 1943, is entirely about Michael Collins. From 1918 until his death, she says, they saw him very often. While he was working on the new Irish constitution in 1922, he used to meet Crompton in London, while Maya saw him in Dublin during the treaty debates and later in her Rahini home several times a week. She says the books written about Collins... Give an incomplete picture of him. In the last years of his life, he was shedding his wild, drinking, larking side. He used to come to her home because of its peacefulness. It was an old house, spacious and beautiful. She says he loved beautiful things, had a hunger for them, knew he had not had them, and that it was a loss to him. Maya says that Collins's fiance, Kitty Kiernan, belonged to his rowdy past and was a heavy drinker, plain and vulgar. She claims that Collins asked her once to take Kitty under her wing and show her how to be a lady. And when he told her that she was brainless, I said, Then why, on earth, are you marrying her? He laughed, answering, because she is a devil. Of Erskine Childers, she says her husband strongly advised him not to come to Ireland, since he would be more use to the Irish cause in England where he had some literary reputation. But it was no use as his wife was determined to come to Ireland and be a Madame Roland. She claimed on the 20th of September 1941 that Cahill Brewer, Austin Stack and Bob Brennan were all enemies of Collins. The last two long before the truce. With the June letter, she sent typescript notes of the English treaty delegates written by Crompton for Michael Collins. The note on Lloyd George describes him as slippery but with a winning charm and a way of seeing the essentials of the situation in a flash. It advises Collins to appeal to him as a brother Celt and to show him that he cannot support the independence of small nations while resorting to force in Ireland. Collins should impress upon him that he alone has the imagination Energy and persuasive force to make peace with Ireland. In conference, he is master of all the arts. He can read others like a book, seeing in a moment the character of each and how to play on it, and can sympathize, cajole, flatter, bluff, and intimidate as may be suitable. And always he is ready to compromise. He is not concerned with principles. He is out for a bargain. He wants, and must have success. There is also a most perceptive assessment of the young Winston Churchill, the dark horse of English politics, too adventurous and independent for the ordinary party ties and labels, has an intellectual thoroughness, which is very rare in a politician and almost amounts to a moral quality. In spite of his reputed militarism and dictatorial air, has a more real idea of freedom and care for it than other politicians. These briefing notes are unpublished. They must have given Collins a very useful basis for his approach to the talks, especially for his private discussions with Churchill and Lloyd George, which had a significant bearing on the outcome. Moya died on the 28th of September 1943, six weeks after writing the last of these letters. Her unpublished memoirs are said to have vanished. These letters offer the only extant first-hand account of her friendship with Collins and the help she and her husband gave him at a crucial time in Irish history. In 1948, Ernie O'Malley visited Tumivara and interviewed Jack and Andy Harty in an effort to find out from them what they knew about the shooting of Michael Collins. In his book, Marathon Marriage, my father, M.F. Kenny, relates the following story, which gives us an insight into what the anti-treaty members of the Tipperary Number One Brigade were thinking at the time. Andy Hardy gave me a synopsis of the event as he knew it, saying that Collins was a member of the established intelligence in London. The post office was responsible for all the intelligence work at the time he was employed there. Then in 1909, MI5 was established and was open to those trained in intelligence work in the post office. On the journey to Cork and Bail Nablau, the Collins convoy called into Marlborough jail. There Collins spoke to a group of Republican prisoners, among them some top men in the IRA. When he departed, a man with an English accent approached the group and informed them that he was well acquainted with Collins having worked with him in the post office in the early days and after. He told them things that only someone working closely with Collins in London could have known. The leader of the North Tipperary Brigade was one of the prisoners and he questioned the Englishman until the veracity of his statement was established. A decision was quickly arrived at and a sealed document was given to a visitor. Concealed in the turn down collar of his coat, to be conveyed to guerrilla activists. The courier departed as soon as the convoy had left. He delivered the document to a North Tipperary unit. There a decision was arrived at, and an expert in guerrilla warfare, who was a crack shot, was given the task of tracking the convoy. This he did, and he got his opportunity at Belle Nablon. Independent from another ambush party, he took up his position towards the northwest. Shots rang out from across the road in the northeast. He raised his gun to his shoulder, got Collins in his sights, and squeezed the trigger, and Collins fell. He left the scene immediately. Andy Harty, a member of the Republican police during the War of Independence, also said That is true, but I refuse to give the story to O'Malley. So maybe Sonny O'Neill did take out the Generalissimo on that fateful day at Bail Le Blanc, at the time when the doll was prorogued, democracy suspended, and the trio of Collins, Duffy and Mulcahy running the war, with O'Higgins occupying the position as Minister for Justice. After being on the run until 1926, Sonny O'Neill settled in Nina County Tipperary, just 12 kilometres from Tumivara, where he had led a very comfortable life and was living there in 1948 when Ernie O'Malley was interviewing Jack and Andy Harty. Historian John Hoerehan says that Dennis Sonny O'Neill is the man responsible for the assassination of General Michael Collins on the 22nd of August, 1922. During the course of that 15
1: to 20 minute gun battle at Bale na while historians continue to invent dubious conspiracy
0: theories, sound logic and careful research points the blame clearly at the doorstep of Dennis Sonny O'Neill, the trained ex-British Army marksman and sniper, born in Timor near Bandon in 1888. The anti-treaty group involved in this skirmish on the 22nd consisted of Tom Hales, Jim Hurley, Dan Holland, Tom Kelleher, Sonny O'Neill Paddy Walsh, John O'Callaghan, Sonny Donovan, Bill Desmond and Dan Corcoran. They had left their prepared ambush positions and were helping to clear the road and decommission a landmine before dispersing when the noise of an approaching motorcycle and lorries were heard coming from the south. As the anti-treaty forces retreated, a dum-dum bullet from an elephant gun. The latter was substituted for another rifle by Sonny O'Neill from a consignment of arms intended by Michael Collins to be sent northwards in support of the Northern IRA. Entered the forehead of General Collins, just below his left hairline. The bullet exited behind his right ear, removing part of his head. Dr. St. John Gogarty and Embamers at St. Vincent's Hospital, Dublin, had to use several pounds of melted wax to fill the space left by the bullet as it exited. No one else lost their life on that fateful day, and Sonny O'Neill was certain, as he retreated, that he had hit one of the pro-treaty forces, unaware that the target he hit was Collins. O'Neill, on learning of Collins' death the following morning, told James Carney that he knew that it was him who had shot Collins. And Morris Moss Toomey, from Dlan Dilan, Formoy, County Cork, staff commandant of the 1st Southern Division, was also aware of who the assassin was. Ten years later, Sonny O'Neill would also relate a full account to a trusted female friend, Kitty Teehan, a member of Thomastown Commandant. Daniel Murray looked at Florence O'Donohue's investigation into the death of Michael Collins. O'Donohue's role in the War of Independence had been as Head of Intelligence for the number 1 Corp Brigade, though he had remained neutral in the Civil War. And Murray concludes that the death of Collins was regarded by many on the anti-treaty side as a tragedy. Despite their opposition to him, and the embarrassment felt in the death of such a prominent national figure can be felt in the attempts by many to minimise their roles in the fatal ambush. A document submitted by a group of members In the ambush party and transcribed by Florence O'Donoghue in 1964 is a prime example of this as the reason for every source to have been written must be examined the one here was to cast the role of a group of participants in a controversial event in the best light this was done in two ways the first was to deny that they had intended to kill Collins specifically and that the ambush had been intended As another run-of-the-mill action against the enemy. The second was to construe the ambush as an inevitable consequence of the ambushers suddenly finding themselves in danger of being ambushed in turn. This bears a certain resemblance to a similar ambush recorded by another, one of whom O'Donoghue was already familiar with as an editor, raising questions as to whether he borrowed a convenient explanation for his own inconvenient ambush. This pattern was repeated by one of the group, Liam D.C., in his own version, published some years later, which distanced him from the ambush, even at the expense of contradicting the account he had helped to write. This is not to say that O'Donoghue's document is a true or false account, but that it was written with an agenda that must be taken into consideration when using it. Liam Lynch, 1892 to 1923, was baptised William Fanahan Lynch. In 1910, when he was 17 years old, he joined the Mitchellstown Company of the Irish Volunteers. Having completed his term of apprenticeship in the hardware business in 1913, he remained at O'Neill's of Mitchellstown for a further year. In the autumn of 1915, he transferred to J. Barry & Sons Limited Fermoy where he continued to be employed until he took up whole-time active service with the Army. During the War of Independence, he commanded the Cork No. 2 Brigade of the IRA. He was captured on the 12th of August 1920, but not being recognised, he was released by the British troops. In March 1921, he was appointed to the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, appointed Divisional Commandant, 1st Southern Division on the 26th of April, 1921. He was an influential figure in the War of Independence. He opposed the Anglo-Irish Treaty, but worked to avoid a split in the army and the nationalist movement in general. Appointed Chief of Staff in April 1922 at the Army Convention, outlawed by the Provisional Government, he escaped following the attack on the Four Courts and returned to the south. There he reassumed command of the 1st Southern Division of the IRA, or Irregulars as they were called, the largest command being one quarter of the total force. Arriving in Mallow on the 29th of June 1922, he also announced his resumption as Chief of Staff of the IRA. In July, August 1922, he directed that the IRA should break up into small active service units of flying columns in order to operate more effectively against the provisional government troops. He was a member of the army council, which hoped to negotiate terms of peace that would not bring the country within the empire. Following the killing of Sean Hales TD on the 7th of December, 1922, and the wounding of deputy speaker, Paaric O'Malley, the government instituted a round of executions of Republican prisoners. Lynch called on Republicans in arms not to surrender, but over the next two months, more of his battalion were captured by Free State forces. Despite the hopelessness of his position, he attempted to carry on the fight. A meeting of the IRA executive was called to consider the new situation. As by now, both Eamon de Valera and Frank Aiken favored coming to terms with the Free State government. Accompanied by Aiken. Lynch travelled to Cork to attend the meeting, stopping at a hideout owned by the Phelan brothers in the townland of Paula Copple County Tipperary, on the way. On the morning of the 10th of April, the day of the meeting, he was shot and fatally wounded in a skirmish with Free State troops at Crahan West on the slopes of the Knockmail Down Mountains. He died later that night in Clonmel. His death signaled the end of hostilities in the Civil War, as his successor, Frank Aiken, called a unilateral ceasefire on the thirtieth of april nineteen twenty three. On the sixth of april nineteen twenty three, Frank Aiken wrote to Liam's brother, Father Thomas Lynch. Written on headed paper, Ogleg Naheron, Irish Republican Army, General Headquarters, Dublin, signed Frank Aiken, Chief of Staff. Outlining the circumstances of Liam's death on the 10th of April 1923 when he was shot by free state troops on the slopes of the knock Mill Down mountains. The fight took place on a mountain as bare as a billiard table. Sean Hyde had him by the hand helping him along when he was hit. To leave him was the hardest thing any of us ever had to do. I was last leaving having been carrying his feet I was afraid to say goodbye Liam lest it would dishearten him. Liam's death was a great blow to our chances of success, coming at the time it did. But they, the press, are quite wrong if they think that they have heard the last of the IRA and the Irish Republic. Although we have dumped our arms, we have not surrendered. And there are several thousand men, women and boys in Ireland yet who believe it their duty to free our country and to see that Liam and the rest of our dead comrades have not died in vain.
1: Broke down over pledging of loyalty to the Stood side by side in 1916 in Dublin's GPO. The big fellow and the long fellow. The friendship it broke down over pledging of loyalty to the crown. Column's dead, so tragic. A film a blow alone with a hazel every picture and a John Lesley